with uh, um, asking you about what was your experience when we um, when we sat together quietly and you had the assignment of watching for endings, being attentive, mindful of endings. What did you discover, or did you discover, or what was your experience? Yeah. Hey, but I was thinking um, here, um, here, um, I always knew there was another here coming in, yeah. and there were many losses, and so um, I think that dwelling on that or focusing on that may hopefully build up so that um, I'd be more um, receptive of, of um, more severe losses. Well, it, it, it made me think of death a lot, too, going through that, and illness. But then I got the comfort of knowing there's going to be another breath, like another wave. Yeah. So everybody heard about, uh, what's your name? Marianne. Marianne saying, I, I, in, in paying attention to endings, I also saw beginnings, and I, I had the comfort of knowing or um, of assuming well, we all assume that we'll breathe in again and out. We don't imagine that all of a sudden our life would be ended. And, you know, this morning when somebody was sharing about some young person who died quite suddenly in their sleep, uh, they didn't know and their family didn't know. And I sometimes think that uh, in the aftermath of that kind of uh, awakening, Everybody has a period of time of um, increased clarity. You really get to see that you really don't know when you say to somebody, I'll see you later, or I'll see you at Thanksgiving, or I'll see you anytime, that you will. And on the one hand, thinking about living in that kind of high alarm, that would be really hard. We could never say goodbye to people. And there's a certain trust that we, that we rely on that for the most part, there's a tomorrow and a next breath, but it's um, it's sobering in 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 some sense. Um, I want to talk more about the sobering, sobering not in the sense of saddening, but in the sense of making this moment more precious. I told somebody yesterday uh, uh, in a conversation a story that I've probably told uh, you over the years with some regularity about the uh, old woman I knew who was a friend of mine's aunt who died at an advanced age in a nursing facility, having lost the facility to uh, speak and apparently the facility to remember, but no one was really sure. She she could sit up in a chair and look at you and maintain eye contact and look like she knew that you were there visiting but she couldn't say anything except two words of all her vocabulary, which she retained. And the only two words, and she, from time to time she said it because she knew you're supposed to say something in, when you sit with people who talk to you. And her two words were temporarily and unexpectedly. <laughs> and um, which you think to yourself, maybe she was really a Zen master, or, you know, that, that she really actually got it that everything is temporarily temporary and unexpected. But then I told it to somebody yesterday, and she said, I know another story about an old woman who lost her ability to speak and was in a nursing home, and she only remembered one word, and the word was 
precious. Isn't that really precious? You know, when you think about it. You can really think about this moment is precious. This time that we're together is precious. We're not going to be together again in this constellation of people ever again than now. Years and years and years ago, uh, there was uh, I, when I was just beginning my meditation practice, I was uh, doing a period of practice in uh, probably Santa Sabina, someplace that was a Catholic monastery. And I was doing walking practice back and forth and uh, in the way to do on retreat, passing a bulletin board with uh, uh, uplifting uh, quotes from scripture. And I'd pass a little quote card that said, we are called upon to meet each moment with joy. And it annoyed me, that card, <laughs> because uh, uh, I, uh, here I was struggling anyway, trying to learn to be mindful. And I would th- I'd think to myself, every time I went past the card, I would think to myself, well, okay, I get it about mindfulness. And I'll, I'll give that card a, a sort of a 50%. I think it's correct to say we are called upon to meet each moment, period. We are called upon to meet each moment with joy. Uh, so, and I'd go back and forth and back and forth. And every time I'd go by, my mind would bobble over that little sign. Uh, and actually, I think the sign is right. Because what have we got to lose except this moment, you know? And I say, well, every moment isn't happy. Well, it isn't. Or every moment isn't desirable. It's not, oh, you don't meet it with delight. But why not meet it with the joy of ability to be awake or ability to be here? Um, When I'm in my clearest mood, I really know that uh, there's only this moment. What else did you notice as you sat? Marianne said she noticed there were all these endings, but also beginnings. What else? Yeah, Naomi. Um, I, I noticed that uh, the impermanence, which I think is very easy to notice. The hard thing for me is to add a couple words. Everything is impermanent, and that's all right. Uh, because I know that I experience a lot of sadness. Yeah about the losses and, yeah. the, and the changes. But sitting here today, um, I didn't experience it that much because the next breath came so soon. Yeah. There wasn't time <laughs> to, to grieve over the loss of the one that had come before. I think about that a lot, you know. Uh, and I, uh, in this conference that I was at, where I uh, I was giving presumably the Buddhist view on on time and uh, what did the Buddhists have to say about time, and I said, well, I, uh, there were quantum physicists talking about does time exist, and uh, so that was not a point of view that I could that I have anything to say about. But I did I was able to say that the Buddha said as his last teaching in his life. Transient are all conditioned things. Everything that arises passes away. And that I assumed, also I know from the rest of the Dharma teachings, that that awareness of impermanence, of transiency, and fundamentally of emptiness is the core understanding. If we realize 
that this 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 life is unfolding moment to moment just according to all the causes and conditions in the whole universe including my volition but not on based on my volition maybe my volition has a little part in it but it's unfolding that there's a certain amount of ease in it it's it's beyond uh uh it's like people used to say it's out of my hands it's out of my hands uh i uh, maybe this is a little bit well this is the, the 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 phrase that comes to mind is the lord giveth and the lord taketh away you know that people said at funerals but whether or not what concept we have of the lord but of a, a larger there's a larger force in charge of what's happening than my particular volition. It's interesting. I want to come back to that point, but I was uh, 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 interviewed actually yesterday by a reporter from AARP who's doing a story of um, about uh, religion, prayer in different faith traditions. And he said, well, I know that Buddhists don't pray. I said, well, you know, we do, actually. First of all, there are whole traditions of Buddhism in, in which there are prayers, and there are prayers to uh, uh, Buddha entities on other realms. We don't so much do that, we don't do that in this tradition about praying to, but we make intention, we make volition. We say, may all beings be happy, may... Uh, the Dalai Lama have long life. May I have health. He said. That we, so we talked about that a little bit about uh, to whom are you to whom are you expressing that <coughs> prayer? I said, and I I told you know I told him a story of a man I met in a actually in a synagogue prayer group that as that I was leading a couple of years ago where after we had reflected as a meditation, just as we did today together here, on who are you thinking about, we went around and we had, I asked everybody sitting in the circle, uh, who were you praying for? And one particular man who said quite emphatically, he said, I don't pray. He said, but I wish. <laughs> you know, and I, I, and I, I, I took that with me because I think that that's what prayers are. They're wishes. And so if, if there isn't... Um, if I don't have a conviction that I am having uh, a connection to something outside of myself that's picking up my wishes and granting them or not, uh, to what am I wishing? And I think that in telling myself what I wish, I make myself, I'm talking to myself, I make myself closer to my own truth. This is what I really, really want. And I feel better about that. I pray that so-and-so gets better. I really want that to happen. Maybe I feel really the, the poignancy of my fear of being separated from what I love. Uh, that what Naomi said about transiency, adding a degree of uh, poignancy to the life. Maybe it's not sad that things pass away. It's the way of things. It's autumn again, and many people get a little bit sad in the autumn. How many people have sad, seasonal affective depression? I'm gloomier in the in in the autumn. Are you, Naomi? Yeah. Yeah. Just it it just you can see it coming. Like here comes my midwinter. Dr. Seuss called it uh, said, "Here comes the midwinter jicker." That's about it. You know, it's, it's um, 
he wasn't talking about that. It just rhymed with something, but which I can't imagine at this moment what it would rhyme with. But at any event, uh, that the midwinter gloom, things don't look as cheerful when they're all in their decaying aspect as they do when the hyacinths are just coming through the ground and the baby fawns are outside walking around. That it's seeing two ends of the of the becoming and and passing away of life, and when you only see the passing away end in front of you, I think the mind gets a little bit um, into a yearning mood, nostalgic, wishing for what was. Um, but I think that for myself, as I think about it a lot. What it means is not that I should become gloomy. Yes, we lose everything that's dear to us. But that what I'd like for myself is to treat every moment like it's precious, because it is. And it's the only moment I've got right now. And really, I think it's the only moment in which we are free to make it a choice to impact the next moment in a certain way. Oh, I know where I want to go with this, but I want to, I want to do a I want to do an experiment with you first. I want to I I, uh, I want to show you this new book. By the way, this is a book called The Hidden Lamp, and it's a book of uh, commentaries by contemporary women Buddhist teachers. There's a lot of them in here, and uh, the book has just come out. There's an event at the Franklin Street uh, Church this Saturday night from 7 to 9, or oh, 7 to 9.30, of people reading from it and having the launch party for this book. But there are uh, all these different uh, women, teachers, making commentaries, contemporary commentaries, on classic old Buddhist stories. So in each case, in each case, in each story, there's a story and then there's a different woman contemporary teacher commenting on it. So I thought just before I go off to be part of that launch party that I would uh, invite you to make comments on a story. So first of all, get a partner. Look, look around at somebody and say, okay, you're going to be my partner. One partner? Okay. You can, be, you can have three people as a partner. Okay, Naomi, you be a partner with these two people, okay? Okay, everybody got a partner? So I'm, I'm going to read you a story. I also thought it would be great if you taught a little bit, not me, all the time. And at the end of this story, you and your partner are going to decide what does this story mean. Everybody's got a partner? This is a story from the 6th century uh, before the Common Era in India, and it's called Sona's Mother and the Thieves. There was a wealthy lady at the time of the Buddha whose son Sona became a Buddhist monk known for his ability to expound the Dharma. Sona came to visit his hometown, and so his mother built a pavilion where he could speak to the townspeople. She took her whole household with her to the gathering, leaving only a maid to look after the house. During the talk, some thieves broke into the house. Their leader went to the pavilion and sat down near Sona's mother, to keep an eye on her. The maid saw the thieves and ran to her mistress, but the lady only said, let the thieves take all my money. I don't care. Don't disturb me while I'm listening to the Dharma. When the maid went home, she saw the thieves breaking into the room where the gold was kept. 
she ran back to her mistress. This time Sona's mother shouted, Let the thieves take whatever they want. Don't you dare worry me again while I'm listening to the Dharma. The, le- the leader of the thieves heard everything the lady said. He thought, If we rob this noble person, we will surely pay a heavy price in some way. So he hurried to the lady's house and made his followers return everything. Then they went back to the pavilion. When Sona finished speaking, the the leader told the noble lady what had happened, and they all asked her for for forgiveness. Then Sona ordained them into the Buddhist order. Okay. So... There you go, three minutes, five minutes for everybody to have a little seminar.
thing done. No, 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 this is great. This is great. This is just temporarily, temporary. Don't, don't, you can come up, but we'll do it again some more because this is, a, this is a great thing to do. Stopping right here for this moment, let's have like five commentaries, five commentaries, six commentaries. What, 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 what did you like that you said or your, the, what did you like that your partner said? This is the, tell your partner's commentary that really touched you. This is better. <laughs> Go ahead. Stand up, though, so everybody hears you. Oh, Darcy said. Okay, shout to everybody. There you. Darcy said that she um, realized that um, that the, the the leader of the thieves um, was watching the woman, and he saw when she responded to the maid, he saw how calm she was, how how um, uh, serene she was, that she didn't worry about anything, and that, that that might have been one of the things that he was looking at as well. How could she be so serene in a situation where, where someone's stealing her stuff, you know, and so he was really impressed by that. Thank you very much. Somebody else tell what, so it's better if you tell what your partner's insight was. <laughs> no, it is. There you go. Into the specifics of we were in a, a threesome here without going into the specifics of what each of us said. What was interesting to me is that each of us had a different take on the same story, and yet we could all agree with each other's viewpoints at the same time. So, uh, yeah, and they, Naomi made the point that story rather than philosophy or mm -hmm. something dry allows people that openness to enter from whatever their point of view is. I think that, that the point of a story, any story, uh, is that everybody brings their view of it, and the same story in the same person every day that you read it has a different, has a different thing. People who do scripture scholarship read the scriptures over and over again, and each time you come up to that story in the scripture, it means something different to you, or you have a different understanding of it, because you're a different person. And you, you don't step into the same river twice. It's a different part of the river, and it's a different you who are stepping. What else? Go ahead. So we had things that came up that I guess we looked at the problems in the story a little bit, things that made us kind of... So Alana said, if she was so radically accepting, why did she leave her maid there? <laughs> that. And that opened up a lot of discussion. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever. Okay, that's all I'm going to say. No, that's great. Okay, go. Um, uh, well, I thought Ruth said something I thought was interesting in that the lady was so committed to, to listening to the Dharma and didn't want to hear anything else. She was fierce about it that that changed the thief's mind and he felt that he would follow her, you know, and her fierceness and commitment to the dark. All right. What else? One more, at least. One more. There you go, Brahmani. Zoe thought in a similar line, she said, um, wow, the thieves saw, thought, saw this woman say, wow, this is even more valuable than all of my belongings. And she said, I imagine they thought, wow, there must be something worthwhile here. <laughs> 
Okay, let's do one more. Was that fun? All right, let's do one more. Here we go. In a, this is called Patakara's Presence of Mind, and you'll recognize it because many of you have probably heard this. It's, this is, again, 6th century, uh, century before the Common Era uh, in India. In a single day, Patakara experienced the death of her whole family. Her husband was bitten by a poisonous snake. Her newborn child was carried off by a hawk. Her older child drowned in a river. Her brother, mother, and father were killed when their house collapsed. Mad with grief, she tore off her clothes and wandered naked in circles for a long time until she stumbled into the place where the Buddha was teaching. The monks wanted to send her away, but the Buddha stopped them and said to her sister, Recover your presence of mind. At his words, she regained her sanity and knew she was naked. A man threw her his cloak and she covered herself. She told the Buddha of her tragedies and begged him to help her. He said, I can't help you. For countless lives you have wept for loved ones. Your tears could fill the four oceans, but no one can be a secure hiding place from suffering. Knowing this, a wise person walks the path of awakening. His words eased her mind. She ordained and practiced diligently. One day she saw into the nature of impermanence, and a vision of the Buddha appeared before her. He said, Patakara, all human beings die. It's better to see the truth of impermanence even for just a moment than to live for a hundred years and not know it. Patakara awakened and became the greatest of women teachers in the Buddha's Sangha. So you've heard that or uh, something like that in another story. So let's have five minutes of working with your partner again. Ready, set, go.
How are you doing? You need another minute? You need another minute. Okay. Use another minute.
Okay. <laughs> so, who wants to report on their partner's insight? Go. The line was, and I was going to say, what do you think is the most important line in the whole thing? He said, sister, recover your presence of mind. Uh, I love that. But it is, get together. Get a grip. Get a grip. I actually think that would be a great name for a book. Get a grip. You know, that... Uh, <laughs> what else did you think? Yeah. Well, getting a grip, I thought it was a little harsh. Because <laughs> the poor woman lost everything. <laughs> <laughs> He's a prince, and, you know, if he went back to his former life, he had gold and a great life. Yeah. I just thought it was a little harsh. You know what? Uh, I, I think you're right, Marianne, in a certain way. Well, let's have some more commentary, and then I'll tell you a personal thought I have about that. Okay, Nancy. Well, I can see the harshness in it, but I also see incredible dignity and respect. Like, by saying that, he's giving her the message that he knows she's capable of doing it, which is a really wonderful. And then he goes, yeah. <laughs> what else? What else? Yeah. Saying I can't help you, but in, in a sense, he did. But it, he's like, but to say that I cannot help you, yeah, like, yeah, that's from a man's point of view. <laughs> <laughs> he could have been a little bit kinder, right? He could have been kinder. It seemed very masculine to me. Yeah, well, with all the apologies to the men who are here, it's a different, <laughs> was a different time and a different culture. Yeah, and who knows what he actually right. said? <laughs> what else? Yeah. Actually, a very important point. Go ahead. Uh, someone in, in our group 
said she she said she thinks this is the same story as that mustard seed story. Uh huh. Okay. But the but yes, but the difference is in that story involved humanity where he told her go and talk to every family. So it was a process for her whereby she she talked with other people and then began to feel okay about it rather than just what the Buddha seemed to suggest in this story of just go off by yourself, be mindful all on your own. Yeah. And that's so much harder. Yeah. In my, in my, for me, yes. Yeah, I, I, I think that uh, Anna in her commentary, it was, it's Anna Douglas who comments on that, <laughs> on that particular story and I, and I think that she brings up that mustard seed story. Um, I've, I talked about the mustard seed story in in one of my books, at, I think maybe the last one, where I said um, I said I, I don't like the end of that story. It's okay up to the end, but at the end it should say that she went to. Do you know the mustard seed story? Well, a woman comes to the Buddha with her dead son and says he died. Could you bring him to life? You work miracles, and he said I will bring him to life if you bring me a mustard seed from the home, a home in which no one has ever died. And of course, the frantic mother runs to every home, but there is no home in which people have never died. So she comes. She suddenly realizes that same truth. Everybody dies. She comes back. She bows to the Buddha. She becomes his disciple, and she becomes ultimately enlightened. I, I didn't even like it at that ending. I would have liked the so my rewritten ending is she comes to the Buddha and bows and says, "I get it," and in between then and her becoming a disciple, they sit together for a while and the both of them cry. And then they go on. That you know, I don't know whether that's a twentieth century that we want to add that sensitivity. We have to make a transcultural shift from that. Um, yeah. I just thought it was interesting people's different interpretations about it. And I, I also felt it was rather harsh because then I was thinking I wonder if it had something to do with also you know, one's childhood, you, how you interpret things, if you had maybe parenting that sort of was harsh and this is the way it is, and so in a, in a you know, negative way, then you might see the way he was saying mm -hmm. it as being negative. But, you know, the words are words, but you can interpret the words in, mm -hmm. in different ways. Mm -hmm. I think that's true. And I think people enjoy, gravitate to different lineages and different teachers yeah. because they present the teachings in ways that are consistent to their own personalities and minds. One of the things that comes up, um, came up in another interview recently, someone asked about what is the teacher-student relationship in, uh, in uh, the mindfulness community, teaching um, vipassana meditation, mindfulness meditation. And so well, it's different from uh, the other major lineages, Mahayana and Vajrayana, because we tend not to say, I am a disciple, we don't say I'm a disciple of Jack or Joseph. We might say I'm a student of, I have studied with Jack Cornfield, Joseph Goldstein, Guy Armstrong, Sally Clough, my teachers are. I actually love that in all of the years. My teachers still are all of those people and they're also my friends. Uh, and uh, I think largely that's because in Asia, uh, uh, where uh, largely as it exists, Theravada Buddhism is, is a monastic, um, largely taught with monastics. And so people tend to have a, a kind of a different hierarchical sense in relationship to monastics. 
but not with us. We have friends and colleagues who uh, teach, and uh, it's a very big pleasure for me to be a retreatant on a retreat here and have people who I've taught teaching me and sitting in front. I listen to them, and I think, look at that. They do that so well. And see some of my colleagues sitting in there with me. Maria has been a teacher of mine uh, 30 years ago when she was already teaching, and, and, and I was just coming into the tradition. I like that a lot, that we just, everybody expounds the Dharma in their particular way. And then you get to hear, I see we are about the Buddha's tone of voice, and who knows what it was. But in, in modern times, we hear the Dharma through everybody's tone of voice and get to hear, I think, what's essential Dharma and what's a different tone of voice. And we figure, we figure out what teachers will sit with, with how we <coughs> resonate. Who else had a thought about this particular story? Yeah. Well, isn't Deepa Ma the contemporary of this kind of story? In a certain way, she is. Deepa Ma, who's an, uh, who died some in the last decade, uh, the story about her, well, the truth about her, uh, the fact about her, is that uh, her, I think two of her children and her husband all died in very close order to each other, and she was quite devastated by it. And uh, uh, at some point someone suggested that she try meditation as a way to deal with her profound loss. And she found her teacher Manindraji and studied with him and went on to be uh, um, quite uh, extraordinarily, remarkably insightful and revered as a teacher of my teachers. Um, she was um, she was a remarkable woman. I met her. She came on. She was in this. She was in the United States. Uh, my teachers brought her uh, maybe thirty years ago, twenty five, thirty years ago. Uh, on, from uh, Calcutta, where she lived, to the United States, and they were on tour with her. I thought about it, it was in the time that rock groups were starting to be on tour all over the place. <laughs> and here was Deepama on tour with her, her students. She was a, I'll tell you this story because it, it comes in my mind the first thing. She was a very small woman, smaller than I am, a small little woman. And uh, they stayed at my house because uh, just in the Bay Area, I had a larger house than anybody who was offering a house. And uh, when she arrived with, uh, my, with my teacher, Joseph Goldstein, and several other people that were accompanying her, and her daughter and her grandson, they came a whole entourage. They came up to my house and came up the stairs and into my kitchen. And at the time, we had a very large male Akita. So a big white dog, weighed 130 pounds, and stood up, he had a head like a bear. And he was, he was, he was certainly docile with people, uh, but he was formidable to look at. And she came in, I remember she coming in the kitchen door, and he stood up in his <laughs> massive way. And most people were daunted by it. And no one had said anything about, watch out for the dog, but here I open the door, welcome. And here she comes in here, the dog stands up, and she goes right up to him, puts her hands on his head, and gives him a blessing. And I thought to myself, this is, a, you know, it's, it's the enduring story that I remember about her. I thought, okay, that's good to know. Anybody else have something to say about that one? Otherwise, I'll read you another story. Yes. 
my partner and I were wondering what's the significance of the main characters in these stories being women. I suppose, I don't know, uh, I suppose because this is a book written about women's commentary on Dharma knowledge. My guess is, no, I think I think it's more than a guess. I think these are contemporary Buddhist teachers talking about ancient wisdom, women, women of wisdom. That's why. Because come to think of it, I haven't read every story, but every story that I've read has been about women. I'll tell you after I go to this conference on Saturday. Yes. Uh, yeah. My partner wondered why um, she had to face so much tragedy, and to, to in order to come to that sort of awareness, and not any one of those would have been sufficient. Maybe it's, maybe it's the Dianu in us. <laughs> my reading of it was very sort of cynical Western, like, oh, she's naked, and the male gaze, and they're all around her. Of course, she has to be naked, and she's probably Susan Sarandon or something. Like, it's still. Like kind of a classic um, Western story, or you know, has a, a tragic element that's, that evokes, um, you know, King Lear on one hand, or the Greeks, Medea, or something. So I don't know. Those were I had. I mean, one is very simple. I would, I would no, 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 no. First of all, what's your name? Susan. Susan, thank you. See, what I love again is that everybody reads a story with their eyes and their ears and their heart and their conditioning. And that's the point of stories is, is not so much to say that's what the story means and now I know more about the story, now I know more about me is what <laughs> stories are meant to, to evoke. Uh, Sufis uh, have a tradition of getting up in the morning and reading a story and they've read the story a lot, a lot of times, but to see where am I? It's a reader of your own self. Um, when I first read the story about um, the Buddha not uh, uh, opening the, uh, when the Buddha established his order, uh, it was just men. And the first woman who came was the woman who had taken over the care of him when his mother died as a, when he was a child. But he said, no, no, don't let any women in. They'll ruin it for us, just as one rotten apple spoils the barrel, one woman in the sangha. And when I first read that, I thought, ah, then you realize, first of all, I don't know if the Buddha said that. Maybe it's 300 years of commentary that put in that misogynist look. And second of all, uh, that misogynist feel. And I thought, this is my sensitivity coming up. And then I also thought, if he said that about women, he was wrong about women. He was right about Dharma, but he was wrong about women. That, you know, that's also a possibility. He was right about suffering and wrong about women, but he was also uh, a product of his time, as I am a product of my time. We all read it with our own ears. I'll read you one more. Okay. Oh, well, don't you think all that, even what you just said, there's a use of hyperbole. Yeah. You know, that may, so that you really get it, right? You yeah. really get it. Like the Buddha then relented. Did he yeah. not? Yeah. And take his stepmother in. Yeah. And so for him to relent, to convert after having those horrible thoughts makes yeah. it even more of a teaching moment, right? Maybe, maybe. Then that's maybe why the, uh, this uh, Patakara has to lose everyone in her family. It's in case you didn't get it, this, this means. 
But you know, in case you didn't get it, and you watch the news in the last three days, and you see it looks like matchboxes, it looks like pickup sticks. And I thought to myself, the wind blows across the prairie. I was flying home on Sunday from New York, and we take off and everything's fine flying along, and suddenly it's a very bumpy flight. And suddenly uh, the, the captain is on saying, everybody seat belts, stay in your place. Now, flight attendants, sit down, put on the seatbelt, stay seated until further notice. And it was really bouncing around in that plane. And uh, I happened to have turned on my uh, uh, television screen in front of me. And there's CNN or one of the news channels with a map of the United States showing all these tornadoes happening. <laughs> just on the ground in the Midwest, under where we're flying. So you think, to, and I actually, I mentioned it to one of the flight attendants later. I said, uh, you know, what we just passed over that, it, when it had calmed down, I said, do you suppose that was because of all those tornadoes and all those winds going on down there? She said, actually, it probably could be. Where's Joe? Is that from that? Does that do all those tornadoes, does that bad weather down there make a difference in the planes? <laughs> so, but I'm, I'm thinking, I'm flying over that, and I'm safe in my airplane, and here I am now. And the people there, look what happened to their houses. The people in that, in that swath where the tornado passed, the people who lived a half a block away from that swath, their houses are there, and, you know, they heard it, but it didn't go over them. How many people here have lived in the Midwest and taken shelter from... From tornadoes, it's, it's a really it's a scary thing, um, and you realize I, I realize when I watch that that uh, it's kind of like the, like Patakara. You don't know your whole family could get killed, your whole house could be destroyed, everything could get destroyed. From but now I think it's better now because at least they have warnings and people go places and they go to church basements. But in the Philippines. You don't know. You don't know. And you look at that kind of devastation. And the day before, everybody was all right. And it's nothing to do with what anybody did. It's nobody's fault. There are things that happen because it's somebody's fault, uh, accidents that happen, so to speak, fault. Uh, because there are accidents that happen because of drunk driving that you could say, well, that wouldn't have happened if the person wouldn't have been drunk. But people driving sanely and soberly and a, a tornado comes along. You don't know. You know that 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 that's sort of awesome. I think awesome has become a kind of an overused word a little bit. But I want to go back to the get a grip. Uh, uh, what did what did the Buddha say? Um, recover your presence of mind. So I'll read you one more story. One more. Uh, koan. This is not. This is a more contemporary koan. Uh, an old woman was standing on a New York City street corner on a cold November evening, trying on wool gloves, shifting and tapping her feet side to side, obviously trying to warm them. Back up a little bit, the vendor says to the person standing behind her. Don't crowd in so close. Hey, the man behind her replies. I'm just watching the old lady dancing. The old lady feels tears in her eyes. She pays for her gloves and leaves. She thinks, old lady, dancing? 
She continues walking down the street towards Lincoln Center, thinking that her mind felt like a balloon that had been pricked. Her sense of herself as chic and sprightly had changed into humiliated and depressed, and her mind began a list of self-critical remarks, beginning with, you should have remembered to pack gloves. She was continuing uh, an extended internal lament about how the evening she was anticipating had been ruined and how the zest for it that she'd felt in her mind was all gone when she had the thought, stop, get a grip. That remark already happened. The ruining is happening now. She started to laugh at that point about how easy it was for the mind to run around, run away with itself down a road going no place good. She thought, wow, a whiff of drama, and the mind runs away with itself. <laughs> she said to herself, the plain truth is that I am an old woman, and I was, so to speak, dancing at the venture's stand, and I forgot to pack gloves, and I am on my way to meet a friend I love, for an evening of dinner and a concert on a cold <coughs> autumn night in New York City where all the trees on Upper Broadway are wrapped from the base of their trunks to the tips of their branches in strings of white light. The choice of either embellishing the glove story and suffering or taking the other fork in the metal road and rejoicing in the good fortune of being alive and well in that moment was easy. and the evening was rescued. Contemporary koan, what do you think? Talk to your person next to you.
So what's the message of that particular that particular story? Yeah. What's your name? Allison. Allison, thank you very much. Of course. What else? <laughs> what else? Of course, of course. Of course. <laughs> well, I'll read you the paragraph after that. Um, okay. In the end, I spent a relatively short. I, I just. In the end, I, I spent a relatively short time wandering in a byroad of discontent before rescuing the evening. But I could have done it sooner. I could have avoided a lot of struggle by addressing the pain immediately. I could have said, at the moment that I heard the remark and tears came to my eyes, I could have acknowledged to myself, "I'm in pain." I probably would have instinctively taken some slow, deep breaths, always a comforter to anyone in pain, all the while I was paying for my gloves. Perhaps I would have thought to myself, relax, sweetheart. These things happen. You got startled. You'll be fine. Holding myself in compassion would have inhibited my mind from making negative judgments about me. And if I found, as I walked down Broadway, that an echo of startling pain still reverberated as confusion in my mind, I might have brought my attention to the people all around on their way somewhere as I was and felt supported by their company. Or I might have appreciated the lights and the trees all around me and admired the skill of the people who strung them all through the branches. Think about this sequence of moves as the generic formula from re for recovering from challenge. Stop. Acknowledge the distress. I'm in pain. Always works for me, regardless of the particular flavor of challenge. Do something to regain your balance. Deep breaths usually do it for me. Notice how your mind, awakened, sees possibilities clearly. Choose the option that leads to happiness. Keep the present moment simple. Enjoy the relief of a mind restored to ease. This builds confidence and makes it a habit. Anyway, and on and on. <laughs> Moments of restoring the mind to comfort happen all the time. 
things do happen. It's incredibly easy to become annoyed <laughs> or dispirited or indeed become bewildered by other energies of confusion, lust, restlessness, and doubt. The Buddha, all those energies that the Buddha named along with uh, annoyed or dispirited as the five hindrances that hindrances to clear seeing that arise in the mind in response to challenge and subvert clear decision-making. Probably most of us can recall an instance of finding ourselves eating a slice of pizza or a Dunkin' Donut and thinking, how did this happen? <laughs> I was walking along the street on my way home and suddenly the smell of pizza or donuts wafted by my nose and apparently I veered into the store and here I am eating. This is a good example, I, I think, because although eating a slice of pizza or a donut is usually a benign action, sometimes for people with allergies or illnesses it isn't. And other illnesses, those motivated by clearly unwholesome impulses, greed, anger, revenge, are not benign. A well-functioning mind GPS would remember that between every impulse and the action itself is the possibility of careful reflection. It would signal, slow down, think, where do you want to go? Recuperate, uh, recalculate. This is a piece that um, uh, you it it will be in uh, the next issue of the Shambhala Sun. Uh, I have to work on it a little bit more, but it it starts out about. Uh, it's we want to hear how it starts out. I, it's better if I read it to you, see, because then I see what I have to fix up about it. My GPS, the GPS in my car never gets mad at me. No matter how many times I turn left or right to avoid the tor torn up under construction street ahead of me that she has recommended, she says, recalculating, and directs me to turn right and then right again until I'm back to where I first re encountered the blocked road. I again select an alternative route. She quietly and firmly says, recalculating. And I say back, hold on, keep talking if you want, but I know where I'm going. I'll soon be where you want me to be. And when I indeed joined the route she was aiming for, I almost expected to say, good girl, Sylvia, you did it. But she never does. We drive together quietly until I need again to alter her instructions, and she's right there again, firm but never impatient, ready to straighten me out. And then we go on. But anyway... Is that, you like that? I, I like the idea of a mind GPS. I think what we're doing is training our minds to be like a GPS, and it works better and better, you know. You know the GPS is, in my car, it's better than in my mind, you know. In the car, it says, watch out two miles from now, you know, stay in the left lane. One mile from now, stay in the left lane. Uh, so that when I come to that you know, right lane that I might possibly take and end up in the Dunkin' Donuts or somewhere, <laughs> Uh, it has already alerted me not to do it. Now, in, uh, with in terms of internal impulses, the impulse arises, and yet you weren't you were you were relaxed. You weren't on guard for that. You don't leave say any place saying I'm going straight home. No, no matter what. You know, so that how to how to make it sound like if you condition the mind enough. I hoped I was making the point that the Dunkin' Donuts is not a catastrophe. But, you know, speaking impromptu, sending that email to people you really shouldn't have sent it to without rechecking a few times or leaving it sit in the computer overnight before you think, before you push the send button, that would be a good, <laughs> a good GPS. And I said, just as you're about to push the send button, it says, it's, a flashing light will go on to say, we are, you are about to tell people, da da da, are you sure you want to do that? You know, <laughs> think.
it's very easy because the mind suddenly, in a nanosecond, gets completely dispirited. What was I thinking? And and it's so easy to pick that up and start running with it and telling yourself stories with it. Oh, it means this, it means that, I'm so idiotic, I should have remembered gloves, this and that. You can easily, go. it's just so seductive to go down a road of embellishing it with opinions, which are none of them good. Um, so that's, a, that's the mind GPS. Recalculate. But yeah. And we, we also came up with the fact that you're more likely to slide down that path quickly if it touches a place that is an old wound, yeah. an old hurt, an old pattern. And so yeah. knowing those old patterns really helps you as part of that awareness. It's sort of not sliding You know what? That's exactly. What's your name? Jane. You know Jane. That that is a, that's exactly a point. I, maybe I'll go back and put it in somewhere, because uh, when we talk about what what's your most prominent, what is not yours, but for each of us, what is the most prominent mind hindrance? The more I told people over the years, I can I have the tremendous ability to catastrophize. If I hear, you know, if I call somebody and they're not home, I can imagine something <laughs> terrible. But they're just not home, you know. That, but but since I know that now about myself and I've told it to enough people can you believe it you know I have an amazing ability to catastrophize about absolutely everything on very little information so that less and less it's not that the mind doesn't make the catastrophe not home ah calamity but then you think to yourself wait a minute that's my mind doing that that's most likely not true let's not run with that you know that that's a particular slippery slope that you don't want to go near um, like, uh, uh, you know, if you have a particular addiction, you don't go someplace that tempts that addiction. You stay away from it. You go to a, a, a venue where that kind of activity doesn't happen. Um, so, yeah. It's kind of hard, though, because you spend all your days thinking about how life is impermanent, right? <laughs> and then on the other yeah. hand, though, when, when he doesn't come home, you know, you're... Th- you're not supposed to think life is impermanent. You're supposed to think, no, he'll be home. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a razor's edge. Well, what I'm trying to think is in that moment that I think, uh-oh, what if he doesn't come home? If I can just change that around to how dear he is to me, how much I love him. You know, He'll probably be home. Sylvia, you've worried the same worry 50 million times. Let's just give it a little time and not frazzle up our minds. And... The reason that you're frazzling your mind is that you love him so much. And you have this particular mind glitch, the two of them together. I know people who don't worry. I think it's like a rare breed. Like, you know, <laughs> you meet people with red hair and green eyes, and you really look at them because there aren't so many anymore. They're getting, you know, um, assimilated. assimilated into the larger gene pool. You meet somebody with, you know, who didn't used to be such a rarity. Think, wow, look at that. Actually, red hair, green eyes. The people who do, who how many who doesn't worry here? Maria, no, you don't worry. That's from your meditation practice, or you just were born that way. I'm not sure which. It's a great blessing. Maybe we should clone. <laughs> people will sequence your DNA or something. Anyway, we have to end because it's after 11. But come next week. It's the day before Thanksgiving. So we'll undoubtedly talk about gratitude, which is the biggest antidote to midwinter depression.
I don't know. I think it's me. We brought books, but you know what happened? Did, did, did you put out the books on the table? Terrific, Hillary. Thank you very much. I forgot to bring the books in my pile. Go help yourself to books. They are books for everybody. If they're, Whatever books are there are books for the taking. Take them. And if you come next week, please come next week. We'll have a Thanksgiving party. Bring books so we'll give each other presents that you can give to people for the holidays. This is the, this is the only Thanksgiving that is also the first day of Hanukkah. It will not happen again like that for 78,000 years. So seriously. So. Yes, and there's a class this afternoon. Hi, Sylvia. Hello, Maria. I have something.